Welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time to listen. And if you could real quick, just make sure to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. And that way you won't miss any future episodes. I would greatly appreciate that. Uh, If you are a fan of my guest, Nick Lowry today, then I hope to have more athletes and sports people on the show. And I'm really going to try to branch out as I've been talking about. Uh, If you're more of a music fan, uh, continue to bring great music interviews as well. In fact, I've got some great ones on the way. Uh, But back to my guest, Nick Lowry. Uh, If you were a football fan in the 80s and 90s, you definitely knew who he was. He was a kicker and he was a good one. And I remember him as a Seahawks fan and the Chiefs being pretty good back then, or at least good enough to kick our ass. And they had Christian Okoye and Derek Thomas definitely beat us a lot. And uh, Nick was definitely a part of that. He was a three-time pro bowler and he retired as the most accurate kicker in NFL history. Of course, that's uh, now been surpassed. But he is still tied for the longest field goal in team history for the Chiefs, and he's in that franchise's Hall of Fame. Uh, So we're going to talk about how Nick got to that point where he could be that successful, and maybe more importantly, what he's doing now. Uh, Because most NFL careers are very short, usually just a couple years. Um, But even if you get to the point where you retire at 43 like Nick did, uh, now what do you do? Play golf? Uh, No, he's actually doing a lot of great work with amazing organizations and helping a lot of people and making the world a better place. And he'll talk about that in this interview. And if you want to learn more, then click the link in the show notes for his website. Uh, Clearly, his NFL career is inspiring. Uh, But to me, all the other stuff that he's doing off the field is really cool as well. So here's our chat. uh, I I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Here you go. Welcome to the show, Nick Lowry, the most accurate, retired as the most accurate kicker in NFL history, seven-time all-pro, three-time Pro Bowler. Very good. Did I get all that right? I hope yes. Yes, you did. Yeah. So what I want to do, and I know some of this will be a rerun for you, but I'd like to talk about your career and and just how you did it because I think people look at success and it's almost like a magic trick. Like, how did they how did they do this? And if we go through some of these things, these key moments in your life, I think we can kind of piece it together. And I think it starts with you growing up next to. Uh, one of the, what was a Supreme court justice who was also led the NFL in rushing. Yeah. And fact, you know, frankly, he should be more famous than he is. I mean, this is a guy, Byron wizard white who led the NFL in rushing twice was a road scholar second in the Heisman should have won the Heisman. I mean, Tom Harmon was great, but Byron wizard white led the NFL in rushing two of the next three years. First with the Pittsburgh Steelers with the largest bonus ever given in the NFL at that point, 15,000, which today would be 15 million or 20 million, who knows what it would be. Right. Um, and then two years later, he led the NFL in rushing for Detroit while finishing number one at Yale Law School. So, but that made you think, even as a young kid, that, huh, maybe I should aim higher. Like, this is possible. Because when we see stuff on TV or whatever, or nowadays, like social media and stuff, it almost seems like it's impossible. But this guy's living next door to you. So it seemed very real for you at that point, right? Well, I don't know about real. I, I didn't know. I mean, that was a dream, right? Yeah. Uh, but but certainly who we and the work I do with, with Native American youth, with African American youth, with poor youth, with at-risk youth, or with any youth is who we surround ourselves with. And by the way, adults as well, many of us get caught up because we're spending so much time with people that don't share core values and, uh, you know, don't share the vision, the purpose that we have. And so we're either drawn towards that or away from that. And, 
by surrounding ourselves with people that have core values, it, you know, for me, it would be purpose, service, uh, contribution, um, certainly adventure, um, character, hard work, um, you know, loyalty. Right. So you hard. Know, you, yeah. Sorry, you go on. You don't share those those values. Eventually, there's conflict as well. If you do, if you're clear about what matters to you, the true core values. In other words, you may have eight or ten core value values, but your core values, your top two or three, will determine how you make decisions and how you spend your time. Yeah, so that's so, really important. So, and then also at a young age, another thing that you learned was this. Uh, I mean, you talk about hard work. You're spending uh, ten hours a day kicking the soccer ball. So that kind of helped you gain those skills with kicking a ball, even though it wasn't a football. Cause then, then when you did finally kick a football on a tee, you thought, Oh, this is pretty easy. You know, I, I think the, the great players, we all are lucky enough to have God given abilities and that's really important. But then the work, the adversity and the work are all about focusing, nurturing and improving that talent. So there are so many kickers that can kick 60 and 70 yard field goals. I was kicking 65 yard field goals when I was 43, 44. Frankly, I should have been gotten a couple more years in after playing with an injury. My last year with the Jets, it took me a couple of years to recover. Um, but there are lots of kickers that can do it in practice. But being able mm. to adapt to that unique situation, whether it's doing a podcast, uh, maybe with somebody really, really famous who you really admire, let's say it's Oprah or the king, uh, the queen of England or whoever it might be. Um, being ready for those moments takes time and managing it because as a kicker uh, and David Beckham said this, a lot of great soccer players said this, they could never be a kicker in the NFL because they were used to being in the flow of the game. Mm. And so suddenly you have to wait and watch and go, ah, and not know when you're going to have to go out and kick it. So it would be essentially the closest analogy would be that suddenly then you don't play the entire game and then you have to go in and kick the penalty kick at the end against the goalie to make it or not. Mm -hmm. And so preparing for that mentally uh, and being able to visualize this thousands of times so that you're ready for it. And then you begin to develop a track record to build your sense of belonging that you're not an imposter. That's pretty important. Yeah. So you talk about the track record. I mean, and you say this is one of your most important kicks was in your high school career was this last second field goal against Landon High School, 42 yarder in the mud. Done your the research. I love it. Yeah. 42 yarder in the mud in the rain one wins the game. And that was important because it showed you that you had potential like, hey, maybe I could do something with this. This isn't just like a. Yeah. I mean, I kicked a field goal in ninth grade at Potomac School, 32 yarder was kind of a spiral. Uh, into uh, into the gum tree on the gum tree field of Potomac in McLean, Virginia, and crushed it and they kicked the ball out of the end zone. And even back then, I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe. I mean, when we have our moments, you're shooting your Michael Jordan, you know, hitting the three-pointer to win the game or whatever, you've got to do that work because that's preparing your kinesthetics and all the cellular memories and anticipation so that it's more comfortable. I did a show for uh, three years, uh, five days a week, 750 shows, on sort of sports psychology and I uh, had great people, great uh, achievers on there. And almost all of them said that their breakthrough moments were when they realized or felt like it was their own birthday party. Yeah. And, yeah. I heard you talking about this. Yeah. So for me, kicking the game winning field goal with no time and the ball literally went through with no time left and all the landed, our, our arc rival landed. 
uh, fans running on the field thinking they'd won the league championship. So the video, which I was shown about 10 years ago, after all these years, um, they're all running on the field. Then there's a delay of about five seconds. And then all our people run on the field and, and all my teammates collapsed on me. And yeah, I do think a breakthrough moment helps you think I have the ability. Yes. Uh, then you have to just keep doing the work and the transition becomes loving, boring, doesn't have to be boring. You can find a way to make it interesting, but loving the hard grinding work. Now, the way you make it interesting is by making context, visualizing this really is as realistic as you can, seeing as clearly as you can every little detail and feeling it and projecting it. And then the second part, what almost very few people do is, how do I feel afterwards? Who do I share my success with? Because that can create a wonderful, what I call a continuum, something that feeds itself a cycle of confidence, not arrogance, of continuing to work to get better, to find ways to continue to improve. And that's who I want to be, frankly, when I'm 90. Yeah, because you, know, you said you said if people are successful and they have no one to share it with, then what's the point? And then it gets pretty lonely, right? There's a, is there you must have encountered people like that in your life, teammates or uh, other football players or other successful people who were very successful but not very liked, and and maybe they were kind of lonely at the top. Well, yeah, you know, I would say that there might be the idea of taking my buddies out to have some beers, et cetera, and celebrate champagne, whatever. But I do tell a story because it was so clear. And the great thing about sports is unlike so many careers where at the age of 40, 35, 50, 60, or tragically even 70, people work their tails off. They grind it out. They achieve what their goal was, they thought, and they're miserable and lonely at the top. So at 24, 25, I'm in Sports Illustrated. I've beaten out the greatest kicker in the history of the game, Jan Center, my own idol. And he hated me for a few years, but then we came to be good friends. And my bro- my father ended up loving him too. That's another story. Um, but for me, I felt so empty kicking the game-winning field goal in Hawaii with 17 Hall of Famers on the field. Uh, I, and I actually last year saw the video for the first time ever. Uh, I knew that Jack Lambert, who I'd become friends with that week, because he'd go to the uh, country uh, western bar at the Hilton Hawaiian Village in Hawaii, uh, at about eight o'clock at night, have a couple beers before going home. And I would hang out with him, watch him sing a couple songs. And before the game winning field goal, he said, rookie, we make 5,000 bucks. If you miss this kick and 10,000, if you make it, make this kick or I'll rip your fucking head off. <laughs> I love that story. And wasn't anyway, Steve, wasn't yeah. Steve Largent the holder too? Steve Largent had fumbled the extra point earlier. So now it's 13, oh. 13, not 14, 13. And he and I have become you know, wonderful friends. I just love him to death. Um, but at the, at that field goal to, to win the game, Jack Lambert's on the left wing. So the left wing has to pivot to the right to make sure nobody jumps through. Cause he's half a step back from the, the line. And then he has to push out anybody trying to come around the corner to block the kick. So he tends to spin as he spins, he sees it go through. He runs up to me and gives me a bear hug. I thought it was for a few seconds, and I watched the video. He hangs on to me, hugging me for literally, I don't know if he had a bat or something, but he hung on to me for, gosh, a couple minutes as everybody came around us. And and those moments are wonderful, you know, your teammates sharing that. But I'm in the locker room afterwards, and as people started to leave and the press and the cameras all left, 
that was a seminal moment. And I want everybody to hear this because that moment stands in front of everybody. So no matter how great your achievement is, you can have that sense of vacancy, of hollowness inside and in your heart and your soul. And I, you know, I have my buddy, Bob Grubb, who's still a great friend. And, but that's it. I didn't have mom and dad. I didn't have the other friends. I didn't have that sense of who I could share it with. And I just thought, God, this is wrong. But the great news is the next morning I woke up. I don't know if you wake up in the mornings with resolutions, but I wake up with what's bothering me and also resolutions. I was hmm. like, your dreams again, help you figure that out. I think never again will I have that feeling. I'm going to make sure everybody comes when I make the Pro Bowl again. Well, unfortunately, the Chiefs were not a very good organization back in the 80s. And then when Marty Schottenheimer and Carl Peterson came, we turned it around almost immediately. Um, so I had three years. Well, yeah three or four years where I was all pro, but not elected to the Pro Bowl. We didn't have a great offense. So people would vote for who had the most points, not who had the best batting average, you know, who was the best, most accurate kicker. And, um, but I did make it two more times. I did kick two more game winning field goals and mom and dad, my family were in the front row. Mom and dad was with my brother, Chris, who just passed away June 1st. And I have a picture of him with Lamar Hunt and Derek Thomas and Gerard Cherry and, uh, Norma Hunt uh, the night before the game uh, and then after the game I had that and that is so important not just the meals and the dinners but just that sense of hey this light that's come into my life I want to spread it elsewhere so in some ways my default which is a, a funny word to use but my default is what, what am I doing every day what am I doing every day to spread light or, or a reverend friend of mine um, from St. Barnabas Church here would call it spreading angel dust because that keeps your sense of soulful purpose and happiness that no one, no one can take away. That's what it's all about. And we'll tell you, great people, Joe Namath would say the same thing, I think, in his own unique way. If you meet Joe Namath today, he was always, I'm frankly, a really cool human being. His teammates loved him. He loved them. He is so clear on all of that. He is so humble because he's had a lot of things taken away from him. And frankly, I can't think of another professional athlete, period, more humble, more gracious, more kind than Joe Namath. And there's a beautiful, you can call it Christian, you can call it religious, but it's also just a clarity about what really matters in life. And, um, I just love him to death. I've hmm. spent uh, times with him just one-on-one -on -one, driving up to Tucson um, to uh, honor another teammate. And um, I've gotten to see this guy in action and I hope I can be more and more like that. Yeah. So that's why, by the way, that's why the Jets beat the Baltimore Colts because they probably didn't have as much physical talent, but they had emotional talent and glue and they would do anything to protect and honor their general on the field, if you will, Joe Namath. That's yeah. why he won the biggest game in the history of the NFL. Absolutely. Well, and you've had so much success, but if we back up a little bit to how you got there, I mean, even when you, when you went to college, you, you went to Dartmouth, but you said that when your parents dropped, I mean, there's so many times along your story that where you could have quit and given up. And even when you first dropped off at Dartmouth, your parents dropped you off and you just, you, you cried your eyes out. Gosh, you have done your work. Um, I did. And, you know, it was about growing up and, um, you know, some do it earlier than that. I was 18 and, uh, you know, I had to make a new life. And 
And in a few months, I was fine. But it, it took some time. I was very lonely at first. Um, but all of us, that's part of the um, cultural notion of initiation, by the way. You know, I do a lot of work with American Indians, and I've been chairman of the National Fund for American Indian Education. For those that want to support Native Vision or my leadership trainings for Native youth, you can go to nativevisiononeword.org. And um, that, that work is, is crucial. I, I love that work. I love sharing those lessons. Um, so anyway, my life is, is pretty awesome right now. Yeah. Yeah. So then again, so Dartmouth, you stay at Dartmouth. You're actually teammates with Russell Wilson's father. And, uh, but then you don't get drafted to the NFL. It's not an easy route from Dartmouth to NFL. It was, what was it? Eight teams cut no eight teams cut you 11 times is that what it was what it was before you got the uh, chiefs kind of rejected right yeah and, and i don't even count philadelphia when i showed up and they wouldn't even look at me and kind of kick me out well how did you, you know? show up you just showed up without a tryout I showed up and said i think I can, i'm better than the guy you had and the funny thing was they had a guy <laughs> mike michelle who was a stanford punter who'd literally whiffed on the ball the week before and they were having him kick field goals too guess what in the playoffs he missed two or three field goals i think against atlanta Wow. So, by the way, if you want to evaluate the quickest evaluation of smart coaches versus dumb coaches, um, see how much they value the kicking game. See how much they understand that that kicker and that protection scheme and the coverage team on, on kickoffs, those details – Marv Levy would say they're a third of the game. No. Yeah, that was the guy that gave you a chance, right? Marv Levy from the Bills. He, Marv Levy. I, yeah. Yep. Yep. So, you know, that's the fastest way to see if the because a lot of coaches will not spend an extra literally five minutes a day making sure those details are right at most 10 minutes. And that can literally and does almost every year uh, allow you to win one or two games or not lose one or two games mm -hmm. a year. And that usually is the distance between first and second place between playoffs and certainly championships. Yeah. So how did you know, though? How do you know when it's time to give up? Because I think you said when the Chiefs called you, you you rejected them immediately. And then you had to go track the guy down and say, no, I do want to do it. Like, how do you know when it's because at that point you had kind of given up, right? You were taking that you're going to take this uh, uh, job with a senator. Yeah, it was not a bad give up in the sense that I had worked for Senator John Chafee twice. I worked on uh, Carter's energy uh, plan to kind of look at actually 40 something years later, we still need to look at the alternatives to, to uh, the traditional petroleum food uh, fuels. Um, and then I was working on aviation deregulation for Senator Bob Packwood, permanent job so that when the Senator, if they lose their job, you don't lose your job. Whereas on a regular staff you do, but on the committee you don't. So great job. I'm the only non-attorney uh, and um, this guy calls, hadn't heard of him. I had the, the uh, Baltimore Colts and Cleveland Browns uh, contracts on my desk, but there was no money. And I just felt, nah. And then here's a guy that tells me he's in a hospital room. He would have called sooner, but he'd had back surgery. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. And I hung up. And then another important detail, I had a mentor. I had someone, whether you call them a mentor or not, somebody call and say, hey, did I, did I think this through? John F. Kennedy called it a, a kitchen cabinet. You know, he had three or four or five people that helped him really think through an issue. Abraham Lincoln had, you know, what they call uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin called the team of rivals, you know, even the people that were your political rivals to make sure you really had thought through these unbelievably intractable, uh, adverse 
issues. And uh, so I called Dick Johnson, just said, what do you think? He said, you'll always wonder. And then I had to find him. And you didn't have the internet. You didn't have cell phones. And I just thought, okay, his name was James Schaff. So I guessed that his name was S-C-H-A-A-F, which it was. I don't know why I was right on that. There were two James Schaffs in a directory in Kansas City. The first one didn't answer. And I thought, wait a minute, he's at the hospital. And I asked the operator, is there a hospital with the same first three numbers of his, that other home number? And she said, I can't do, wait a minute, try this number. He wasn't there also. So then I finally said, well, if he had back surgery, where would he be? And one hour after the stranger called me, I found him in his hospital room. Jim Schaff answered. He was blown away. I could find him. We talked for literally an hour. They flew me in a few days later into snowy Kansas City, did a physical. And then in the general manager's office, uh, Marv Levy came in and they offered me $2,500, which was just something. It was it was a sign. And they also said, very importantly, we'll bring you in in May, May 1st, because training camps in, at that point was late mm. July. So almost three months earlier, which would get me used to kicking against Stenerud, the, you know, facilities there, the other players be a little bit less intimidated. And that really helped. And I remember at the end of that month, the conditioning coach, I can't think of his name now, but I really liked him. And he said, you know, we were talking about it as we we're watching practice. He said, you're going to have to outkick Stenerud. If you be, you want to beat him out, you'll have to outkick him every day at every practice at everything. And I said, you're right. To go with that mentality. And that's exactly what I did. I just knew I had to outkick him every day. It averaged 107 degrees in Liberty at William Jewell College, 107 wow. during training camp. And we had two full pads practices a day. And I wasn't blocking and tackling the way the other guys was, but still. And I, I was being charted by this kid who happened to be Clark Hunt, um, who wasn't very tall anyway. So he, you know, he looked maybe 14. He was actually 16. Sorry, Clark. Uh, um, but it just because I realized later, this is the son and future owner of the chiefs. And he told his dad three weeks into the training camp, dad, I think, I think Nick Lowry is going to, going to beat out Jan Stenner. And Stenner played six more years. So one thing, almost everybody thinks that I just followed him. I didn't follow him. I went head to head, classic, meritocracy so the thing that's missing so much in society today where people just dig in compete head to head and uh, every field goal the distance the get off time everything was charted and after three weeks marv said uh i think because stender was a little slower in the get off he was a little worried about that mm -hmm. might get blocked if it took let's say 1.4 seconds so he said every field goal over 1.33 seconds. That means it's snap back eight yards, caught, put down, and kicked in 1.33 seconds. Anything over that doesn't count. I remember wow. like that. And uh, and then before the third preseason game, which was a huge favor for me because it gave me a week as the kicker, which one of the and Marvel would say this himself, Marv Levy, future Hall of Famer with Buffalo, would say it's one of the most controversial decisions he ever made and ones he's most proud of to take that risk. And he said before the third preseason game against the St. Louis, then St. Louis Cardinals, um, you're going to do all the kicking. And Stenner was told that. And right before the half in Bush Stadium, 
I had a 42-yard field goal. There was a timeout, and I had this moment going, well, buddy, this is it. And I nailed it. And um, they cut Stenerud a couple days later. I remember just knowing what a huge reaction I would be and saying to myself, I'm not going to watch TV. I'm not going to read any newspapers, just blackout. But I was being interviewed saying, why do you think you can do this job? You're, you know, you failed with New England. You've been cut all these years. And um, I just tried to keep my mouth shut. And in my first field goals, first of all, my first kickoff um, was a four, almost four and a half second kickoff, which is about the highest kickoff you'll ever hear in terms of hang time. Hmm. And, um, but then my first field goals, which were against Seattle at home, my first field goal was a 50 yard. It wasn't like it was an extra point. And I made it. And that was a great sign, hit a 23 yarder. And then in the fourth quarter, I'm standing behind Marv and we're near midfield just inside the 40 yard line. And we're about to punt and we're down by four points with eight minutes left. And I said, coach, I think I can make this. He goes, ah! Because Marv was kind of crazy during games. <laughs> I mean, crazy. And he said, uh, field goal team. So I ran out there. Efren Herrera was standing near the 50. Going, what are you doing out there? And I was just on a mission. Steve Fuller, our number one pick the year before, and our starting quarterback held. And I just crushed the ball halfway up the net. Um, the head coach for Seattle said it looked like it could have gone out of the stadium. <laughs> And uh, wow. that was an NFL record. First time two 50 yarders were kicked in a game and a club record, 57 yarder beating Senator's club record of 55. So I had two very significant records in my first field goals for the chiefs, which was a nice way of saying, maybe, maybe I belong and uh, made for 11 of my first 12 field goals game winner against um, CBS, uh, CBS Detroit, the Detroit lions on national TV on CBS and uh, I think that's when my team started to go, yeah, this guy may belong. Yeah. So, I mean, we talk about that, like when you win the, the, the or you kick the game winning uh, kick, it's like having your own birthday party. But so you must have felt the opposite. So explain that and how you work through that, because can't kickers get in a rut if they miss one game winner, then it like, does that not get in your head? And then you miss, I've seen kickers. Oh, I miss remember uh, Vanderjack, most accurate kicker in NFL history with Indianapolis, um, and he's uh, in a big playoff game for Tony Dungy, uh, and um, he badly misses. I think it was a 45-yarder, and he just never recovered. He went to Dallas, and I don't think Bill Parcells treated him very well anyway. I think if he'd been a little bit more nurturing, which was not Bill Parcells' nature, mm. uh, that might have uh, he might have regained some of that, but uh, he was never the same. And so, yeah, you've got to not literally tell your mind to not think just focus, give your mind one key thing to focus on. For me, it might be, uh, uh, I would say, explode, attacking the ball. Uh, for me, it might be just keep my head down, keep my head down. Uh, remember against uh, Miami in 1989, after my worst season with four different holders, when Marty was the new head coach. And, um, you know, I was, I would probably have lost my job if I missed that kick. And actually, Joe Namath was uh, doing the broadcasting, was being very nice. And I was still most accurate in NFL history, but who cares? Mm -hmm. What have you done for me lately? The right hash, 41-yarder. And if I make it, we have a better than 500 record. We ended up being 8-7-1. and one. And I remember just saying, keep your damn head down. Keep your damn head. Your brain, and keep it simple for your brain. And then if you can, of course, 
if the word triggers an emotional response, a controlled emotional response, a spontaneous response, though, not self-conscious, that's the key, then the muscles and the sequencing that your body naturally knows, organically knows, can happen. You can react. You can let it happen. If you're self-conscious, another really important thing in the brain, the large muscle groups work, but those large muscle groups will slow down a tennis serve, slow down a fastball, slow down your leg speed and your foot speed through the ball, slow down a golf swing because they're in a protective mode. And um, so those are important lessons. So being able to not think too much, give yourself and know yourself well enough to prepare for that. And then just think of the one or two triggers and that's it. Is that so? Do you like? Do you not like being iced? Then when they t- when they call the timeout, no, I love being iced. Oh. <laughs> the, the, the difference is being iced when you're a very good kicker. Uh, be, icing helps good kickers and hurts bad kickers. Oh, icing. What I would do is I wouldn't stand in the middle of the field. We called two straight timeouts against Rich Carlos, and he was a good kicker. He's a very good kicker, barefoot in very cold weather. And I had kicked three field goals in the fourth quarter. So we're leading 16 to 14. And he had hit the upright the week before against uh, San Diego. And uh, another wonderful friend of mine, um, Rolf Benerska, and he had sort of patted each other on the back after the game. And he'd gotten uh, criticized because he didn't look like he cared enough that he'd missed that field goal. So now it's just a week later. And we called two straight timeouts on Rich Carlos. Once again, very good kicker, barefoot cold and he just stood in the middle of the field and he ends up hitting the ball and it hooks and hits the upright again. What I would do is say, no, I'm in control. I'm not going to stand in the middle of the field and get self-conscious. I'm going to run to the sidelines, stay with my routine, kick into the net a few times, run out maybe even five, 10 seconds earlier than normal, because normally with a 40 second clock, there's a delay of 10 seconds. You're running out with maybe 30 seconds. You get to the middle of the field with maybe 20 seconds left to line it up, get ready and kick it. So the extra 10 seconds probably helps you a little bit and you've stayed with your routine. So Mm. answer your question in a long way. um, Icing did not bother me at all. Did now do, do do your teammates get pissed at you when you miss the game winner or what is it? They just kind of leave you alone or what is the reaction from in the locker room? Well, luckily uh, I didn't miss too many of them, Um, but you just do the best you can. I mean, I missed uh, one after 24 in a row against Miami. It was dead on from 50, just inside 53 yards. And it it literally nudged the crossbar. And to this day, I don't understand. It was almost like the hand of God because that sure felt like it was going to go through. And um, I felt at peace with myself because I knew I'd given it the best shot I could. Um, but it's crushing anyway. You know, you wake up in the middle of the night going, oh, go through, trying to dream it, go through. But your teammates, if you have shown a work ethic, shown most importantly, just getting it done. And they know that you are one of the best ever. Um, You know, they give you a break. And they also, if they're professionals, they know, hey, I missed three blocks over here. I got our quarterback sacked or whatever. You know, they also know that they're also held to their own standard and they better worry about that more. Um, Now, there might be lesser teammates and lesser coaches that go, our freaking kicker didn't, but that's more high school stuff. Mm. And uh, really, a great coach teaches the ethic of hard work and take responsibility for what you do. Don't worry about anybody else. Do your job. And if I can get all of you to do your jobs individually, then great things are going to happen.
Right. That's awesome. Well, and I love you talk about purpose earlier and uh, obviously you had a great purpose as a kicker, but now, you know, you didn't just retire in golf. Now you're doing all this charity work. So you mentioned the native vision. Um, tell me about all, I think you're doing champions for the homeless. Is that your main focus right now? Well, I mean, I, I'm able to do uh, and blessed to do so many things. I mean, I, I not only charity, but I've re- represented two of the top CBD companies, a pharmaceutical company that makes uh, what I think is going to be the future, everybody listening, the future uh, away from opioids and fentanyl, which are killing 100,000, maybe 200,000 Americans every year. Forget about COVID. Opioids are destroying uh, the lives of, of veterans and football players. And so that's really important. That's, a, to me, a profound service. We fight against Big Pharma, which I call Mega Pharma. They're the single biggest lobby in the world, and they're the single biggest threat to American health there is. Um, while some pharmaceuticals are very helpful and at the right time in the right place are great, mm-hmm. creating dependency like opioids is terrible. But yes, I love the other things I've done, hosted the first, one of the first um, town halls national town halls in Arizona with the president's director of the Prevents Task Force on uh, Veteran Suicide, Dr. Barbara Van Dahlen. And uh, that's a passion. I'm doing work on mental health with COPA Health. All of these things are just simply what's out there that needs to happen uh, that that is clearly an unhealthy part of American, our American fabric. Another one is, of course, American Indians and unfinished business there. And I think um, our leadership training and native vision uh, have probably contributed to maybe a little higher level of self-confidence and skill sets and leadership. Um, but those are things I simply ask myself this question, what am I going to be proud of? You know, And if I mm. am I willing to stick with it for a generation? A generation, I'm giving you a lot of stuff, very talkative today. <laughs> I love it. That's great. A generation. Okay. Think of the difference between the person who says, I want to be a good person, I want to do good things in my life. And the person that starts something, first of all, that takes organization, commitment, then stays with it for three, four years. What about the person for 10 years? But what about 20 years? Like Native Visions now in his 25th year, the kids that were 16 and 17 in Chinley High School uh, up in near the Four Corners in Arizona with no trees anywhere, uh, never thought that pro athletes would come out, 10 NFL players that first year, paid zero just because they cared about Native kids. And now it's seven sports, it's pro athletes, it's Olympic gold medalists, it's college coaches, and they can never say that, you know, pro athletes and Olympic gold medalists would never think enough of us to come out. And and I've never even heard of this. Why isn't this like bigger news? This is ridiculous. Thank you. Why isn't it, by the way, USA Today? I love this kind of stuff. Why isn't it New York Times? Why isn't it Time Magazine? Why aren't you covering this? These are the things people are doing. Because if all we do is cover COVID and say people are dying and people are threatened, we are inhibited from doing the great things that connect us and remind us, my favorite word, refresh the mind, remind us of what we have in common and what we can do, what our power is. So, yeah, I would ask that question, too. Why aren't we covering that? Why aren't we doing anything on immunity? And by the way, there's also spiritual immunity. What do we do to make ourselves still feel powerful and purposeful and happy in the midst of challenges like like the COVID yeah. situation? So. Absolutely. I love it all. Well, thank you so much. It's uh, I think it's been past the 30 minutes. So I appreciate you taking the time with me. This has been really fascinating. Hopefully you'll come on again. I would love to. And, and by the way, if you're interested, we, by the way, we just did the AFB, the American Foundation for the Blinds, 
100th anniversary with my friend Sean Callagy and uh, the unblinded. He's legally blind and we want to double the employment rate, which has been stuck at 30 percent when Helen Keller started this back in 1934, I believe. Um, And we want to double that. And that's just something we did just a few weeks ago. If you want to learn about more of what we're doing, just go to nicklowry.org or you can check me out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at at Lowry Nick, L-O-W-E-R-Y. N-I-C-K. Okay, I will put the your website in the notes and everyone just click that button. So, all right. Thanks so much, Thanks Nick. Thanks for having me on. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Nick Lowry, former NFL kicker, now doing so much great work for the world. Very inspiring. Uh, really just fits the mold of what this show is all about or what I want it to be about. And I hope to have him back on and uh, hopefully this opens doors for more guests like Nick. Uh, So again, make sure to subscribe to the show or follow me on social media so that you don't miss any future episodes. And of course, follow Nick on social media and check out his website link in the show notes to read more about all the great work that he's doing and how you can help and even donate to some of these causes if you have a little extra cash to give. And again, if you enjoyed this episode and it brought you some sort of value, then please share it with a friend or on social media. Or if you want to go all out, you can write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And all those things will help more people find the show and listen. And that's how we grow as a show. So I really appreciate all your your support throughout the years. Have a great rest of your day. And remember, shoot for the moon.